yes, yes, yes. Welcome to Mont Icons. In this bonus episode of Mont Icons, we talk about drill music, Adam Curtis, the experience of live music after the COVID lockdown, and the corruptive influence of a legendary writer and eater, Jim Harrison, on our lives. Where do you want to start with this, Mungwood? Um, let's start with you. All right. Why, why do you think um, you started playing music? I started playing music when I was too young to really have a sense of purpose behind it. So it was something I stumbled into. Someone asked me to drum for a band and... Um, Did you... But you must have had some kind of training, right? No. No, that's the... That's the part of your childhood and adolescence that you missed was that punk is for people that have no training. It's just really you pick up something for the first time and start a band like that and that's both what makes it so compelling when people get it right and so atrocious when people get it wrong. So you're saying I could still be a musician? Absolutely, any any day. <laughs> I think um, I think it, it was being in high school in Wollongong and having someone just come up to me and ask me if I wanted to drum for a band was like my induction into this world entirely. And I tried to drum and I was so bad. I was too bad to even drum for a punk band. Because so. it's like pretty mathematical. You have to keep time and all that shit. Fortunately, I got good at it, but not then. I, they kicked me out of the band straight away. And then later on they asked me to come back and sing for it because no one else could sing for it. So that's how I did my first band. You never did music? No, I wish I did. Um, I wish I learned how to play an instrument. I think it gives you... Um, a lot of discipline that that can help you in life later on that I probably that probably would have uh, added a layer of structure to my unhinged skull <laughs> um, but yeah I, I was always envious of people that got whisked away to um, music classes um, in my high school or even in primary school um, I play, I learned uh, 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 my my biggest musical moment was um, being asked to play the taiku drums in uh, primary school after school as part of the band, but it, they were just kind of tryouts and um, I never made the cut. So, you failed? Yeah, they, they kicked me out. Um, but you've got a pretty, I mean, of anyone I know, you're listening to music pretty much constantly. It's your... Yeah, I, I I love listening to music. Um, so tell us about the tell. Okay, how's this? Let's um let's get onto this because you're sorry. Let's yeah. just do that again. So you, you've uh, as well as as well as being a journalist, you're also a music journalist, and you you write a lot about music and you interview musicians, and um you you did that yesterday, so. Tell us about that. I think for me I've always loved music because I've had a very deep, as everyone probably has, this deep physiological kind of response to it where um, if I, I like a piece of music it just intoxicates me to such a degree that I'm 
replaying it over and over again for hours, um, for days sometimes, the same piece, the same song, whether that be a track by Unknown T or a piece of music by Wagner. Um, it just, there's something about it that helps me, helps my brain just kind of settle or um, focus or um, drift. Um, yeah, and so um, that's why I, I wish I played music because I wonder what 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 it, effect that would have had on 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 me. But um, but writing about music just keeps me connected to that world and make and and trying to share that deep uh, influence that it's had on me um, with other people and and kind of giving them an entry point into the way I'm affected by an artist's music. Particularly like like the drill thing's different because it was like not only did not many people play instruments in my circles and the neighbourhoods around me, um, but they, they never articulated themselves or were given the opportunity to um, express themselves. And now this phenomenon of drill music has allowed people in those environments to, for the first time, express their frustrations or what the fuck's going on around them um, in in their language and in a way that other people in those neighbourhoods understand and that's the most important bit. It's not for private school kids, even though they're the ones listening to it and no gripe against them, I went to private school myself, but... Um, yeah, I think, um, I think it's done in a language, um, that, that, that they can relate to. And that's why so, some artists, when they become famous and they deviate from that gutter style, like that real schema enter gutter, gutter shit, like what they started, it doesn't do as well. Can you talk a little about your interview that you did yesterday? Like like when you're talking to people about making that music. Yeah, I'm I'm just fascinated that like where the fuck did they get the inspiration and courage to do it? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think it was guys like One Four that gave people the faith to be able to, you know, like it's like you won't get laughed at by the area if you do it. It's actually like the whole area will support you if you do it. Um, so I, I'm more fascinated by just the confidence that they have and the courage that they have. Um, when I was growing up, people only had that kind of confidence when they were committing crimes, you know. And um, should we? Are we are we avoiding saying who you who you interviewed yesterday? Oh no, no, okay. I interviewed. So give a little um, background yeah, into yeah, them because yeah. I, I think that's interesting. I interviewed Real Deal Skeng um, for Acclaim magazine, um, and uh, I just—they're not even that big. I mean, they've got a following of a few thousand on Instagram. Not that that is any metric, but um, they posted a video, and they're fr- they're from the southeast, which is where I was like area I identify with so any dreamer from my neighborhood that wants to 
make it as a musician, I'll I'll definitely try. And I got an Instagram message from them saying, you know, if I'd write, do a write-up on them. So I reached out to Cass, the editor of Acclaim, and said I want to write about these guys. And he was super supportive and all booked a foot, like a mad photographer. Um, and uh, they've, they kind of made waves in the area because they posted a video on YouTube that got taken down because they had uh, firearms in the video and uh, with um, and they were minors, they were under 18. So um, I think uh, on a very shallow level I'm attracted to, to that blurring of lines of crime um, and expression. Um, and showing the world the, the reality of Melbourne that most people might be avoiding or brushing under the rug, which is a general trait of what this country likes to do is like fucking um, show you, uh, yeah, a, an alternate version of the truth um, or something. This is something that um, when I interviewed Jim McCulloch, who sings for Civic and um and is a really incredible visual artist and we were talking about this perception that a lot of Australians have outside of Melbourne of it Melbourne being like this um kind of latte wonderland or something but our experience of it was always that it was quite a, a dark place and there was a lot of darkness in not just the city itself but the character of the people here there's a certain kind of anxiety that's almost uniquely Melbourne as far as Australia goes. And we talked about that and how much it bled into the um, the styles of graffiti that were pretty popular at the time that we did, we did this interview, but also like the bands that we were into, like the hardcore and the punk bands from Melbourne. Um, and Man, that's fascinating because you and I talk about the cops in Melbourne and and you you said when you were growing up and you were involved in a lot of like direct action leftist militia shit <laughs> um, that the rumors were the cops in Melbourne are way way more shady than any other state. Well, there was. I wish I could find these because there used to be in anarchist bookshops. You would buy these little pamphlets, and they would just be like almost a a report on police murders in in Melbourne and that that was a little pamphlet that you could buy from the anarchist bookshop for like two dollars and so many share houses had these like from anarchists and punks that would go to shows or would just be peripheral to that scene either in terms of doing direct action or just gonna go see like a punk band playing in this room and then they see this enticing book like police murders in Melbourne or police murders in Victoria. I interviewed um, Taunts about this issue too, who's an amazing um, Melbourne rapper from um, back in the day. Um, or oh, He's actually still a really amazing rapper, but he, he attributed it to the weather. He was like, it's because it's colder in Melbourne. People wear like heavier jackets and everything's like slightly... Yeah, slightly more sinister because of the weather, like because it's not as sunny as Sydney and it's not as exposed. Um, everything's just a bit – I thought that was really interesting. I would agree with that and I'd go a little further. I'd say it's the fact the weather is so unpredictable. So one moment you've got to wear a jacket and the next moment you've got to carry it. 
one moment you've got to hide from the wet rain and the next moment the, the sun's out. And that kind of, I think there's a Nietzsche quote that I throw around a lot. It's basically that fickle weather makes for fickle people. Like if you can't depend on the character of the world around you, um, you start to question the character of the people around you. And while that doesn't translate directly to most people I know, I think there's something to it that um, if you want to really understand people, look at the weather mm, and look at what they're eating. It's like a, I think those are what, yeah, what's yeah, going on yeah, around yeah, them yeah. and what they're putting inside their bodies really. Reminds me of one of my favourite Vice documentaries, the um, uh, Gorgoroth interview. Um, oh, yeah, I never saw that. It was oh, good. no? Yeah, but he just... Man, talk- I never watched Vice documentaries. Like the on, social man. circles that I was Fuck in, no, you no gotta disrespect. watch my documentaries, G. <laughs> of course, I watched yours, but Fuck you, man. never watched all, all of the uh, yeah, but the, the classic hits from Vice. So tell us about this one. This one was great. Um, uh, what's his name? Gal? Is he the lead singer of Gorgoroth? Yeah, I know. Yeah, he's a kind of um, gaunt-looking dude. Um, but yeah, in that interview, he talks about how in primary school there were like three kids in Norway and it was always dark and most of the people in his village killed themselves and it was like this huge thing and it was something to do with because they get like no sunlight. People think differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, I wonder what that what that's about. Well, I think I remember when I was in Tasmania when I was younger it was the first time that I don't know it was the age, I was like 13 years old, but it's the first time that people talked about the effects of weather on mental health and I hadn't really heard that as a discussion before. Um, but when you are in an environment of like constant wind and rain, for instance, like where it just goes on for weeks or even months, when when the weather around you is like has this formidable effect on you being able to walk from your front door to the shops or whatever, I'm sure I'm sure it affects like your. I think that's why stability, I, like your the stability of your character, I guess is all I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's weird. It's like um, opera music like makes sense when it's raining or something to me. You know, like there's something weird about. Um, somber and sobering music and and rain or and clouds or something. I'll just ask you um, what the track is at the moment that you're playing the most. Oh, the track that I'm playing the most at the moment. Um, I, I've been, I mean, this morning I was listening to Chef G. Um, I just like his flow. Who He's is like Chef a G? drill rapper from New York, I think. Yeah, and he's just kind of sentimental, um, which is really beautiful to hear in drill rap, which is like the most violent kind of form of music today, I I would say, or up there for sure, Um, both in because it crosses real violence with uh, an expression of violence, which I, I think is really rare when we think about art in general. But, yeah, I've been listening to a lot of Chef G. Um, What else have I been listening to? I've actually been working so much that I haven't had time to be distracted by music. I've just been focused on 
writing so much that it's kind of, I, it, I kind of need it. It's like I go through waves, these cycles of like I'm either listening to music or I'm watching films or I'm when I'm writing, I'm reading. So, yeah, it's like a cyclical thing. And at the moment, I'm not listening to music so much. I'm, I'm, I'm writing and reading. Well, one, per- one thing I'd like to talk about and one person that's had an immense impact on us both is Adam Curtis. And he has, his, sure. new, he has his new show coming out tomorrow. Do you know anything about it? I don't know anything about it. Do you do this on purpose? Do you avoid reading up on shit? Yeah. So. I, I don't like watching trailers and I don't like reading some dickhead criticism on something, someone that I, I know I love um, because it just um, fogs the experience, I think. Can you give us a brief recounting of your first experience watching an Adam Curtis film? My first experience um, would be when I was watching Bitter Lake and um, there was, which is about Afghanistan, a a country that I'm tied to but have never experienced um, and he kind of traverses the history of the country. Um, But then halfway through you get uh, the... Amazing, uh, uh, Kanye West's uh, Runaway, where it, where it just sinks into like auto tune abstraction. He just drops that in the middle of the fucking documentary, and there's this Afghan guy in like some village, like practicing kung fu. Is it in like a karate dojo? Or yeah, something? yeah, 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 yeah. And I was just like. Man, this is like this guy's on some other shit. Like it's like art. Like it's no, it's no longer. But but I love that form. Like uh, when I was at in film school, that form of the essay film, uh, the French filmmaker Chris Marker had a huge effect on me um, when I first watched Sans Soleil. Um, yeah, and just that the essay film, like. It really, to me, that was like really high art because it it kind of fused um, imagery and uh, language in a, in a way that made a lot of sense to me. Yeah, there's another scene in Bitter Lake that always reduces me. It's um, that burial song comes in off Rival Dealer at some mm. point. I think it's at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and it speaks to it speaks to the strength of his of his ear as well. Like he can take a song that you've heard a billion times before and um, pair it with the the right imagery mm-hmm. to kind of fuck you up. And well, that, he yeah, was, he between was like that, an archivist, that. a BBC archivist for so long. I just imagine him like you know, like doing data wrangling in this amazing library of footage while listening to this music you Mm. know like and just forging these connections and thinking about these different moments in history Uh, because to me it's like the best way to it kind of reminds me of Malcolm Gladwell's writing I don't know if you're familiar with with his stuff but he kind of presents two or three different stories and they'll intersect and make sense of each other while in turn making sense of the world like uh, in a a broader way and I think that's what 
And Malcolm Gladwell goes to libraries a lot. He spends a lot of his time in libraries. And I think it's about being surrounded by that, the chaos of that, of those catalogues. And suddenly you can just, your brain just forges connections and you start seeing things, which I think the internet has really fucked with. Like, I think, um, that, that experience of, um, making sense through chaos, uh, and, and multiple archives and finding intersections to make sense of things is a lot more difficult now with the internet, even though it should be easier because of all these algorithms that think they know what the connections are, but sometimes the connections are fucking different. It's like, you know. Yeah, because I feel that if you want to, people's way of conceiving of the internet is that it would be more of a chaotic environment for data streams, but we know that's not the truth. We know that what you see is predominantly what someone wants you to see. Whereas if you're in a library, um, things are ordered in a particular way, but you, there's, there's a purpose in your direction of your glance or the way that your hand goes to grab a book or something like that. Um, and as a religious person, I believe in fate. You do. Sometimes, uh, you know, you, you're walking through a library or you're in a record shop or like, Back in the days when you were in Sanity and you were like flicking through the CDs, I, I used to always flick through the um, hip hop CDs and you'd just be struck by a, co a cover that you're like, fuck, what is this? I'm going to like that randomness and fate and some, some things just speak out to you. How much of it's tied to physicality for you? Well, not always. Like sometimes you'd be in a massive secondhand bookshop and you'd just be like, mysteriously lured into a corner and to a shelf and to a bit of dust on, you know, a, a book that's about to fall apart and be like, I'm going to read read a page of this and see what it's about and then it's just, yeah, it's pure chance. Because I'm sure there's people listening and I've had this experience of just going down a rabbit hole online in Wikipedia and just suddenly finding myself having a similar experience. So I can yeah, but definitely... but it's different because I think So that's what I'm trying to get you to explain, what, it's, like how... It's leading you somewhere. This is like some fucking, like, superstitious magic shit. This like, is your mystical... Yeah, I think this is like, I don't know, it's weird. It's like, you know, it's like you meet someone in a bar overseas and you become lifelong friends. The The amount of things in life that would have had to piece together for that moment to occur you know like shit like that like um that was that was my discovery of Adam, Adam Curtis was very similar to that was having a I was studying Freud mm. um I was studying Freud and, and Jung and just studying psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis yeah. and trying to get my head around it and um there was a guy in my class who was this was very early stage um, dark net stuff. He was um, always telling me about these experimental drugs that he took with like strange combinations of letters and numbers like 3NP or something and he would always just entertain me with the stories of his weekend just like buying something, getting it in the mail and eating it. And um, one time... He did that and watched, uh, what's the, 
Okay, I'm going to need to edit this part. Man, <laughs> the, just embrace the, the, the fucking unknown. The century of the self. Yeah. The one about um, the how psychoanalysis impacted on the birth of public relations and yeah. the like and told me to watch it. And that film um, definitely impacted my decision to, to stop studying at all. The... What Adam Curtis did with that film um, really pushed me towards embracing doing music and and be, like create creatively. I was already creatively driven, but there was something about the way that was done that that just frightened me away from pursuing philosophy or pursuing um, so, like um, psychology as 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 careers. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a very risky decision to pursue it as a career but um yeah i don't i don't know i lost my train of thought <laughs> well the new adam curtis comes out tomorrow so that's uh something we can look forward to yeah but you know you kind of gave up one risky pursuit for another or or were you already pretty you're pretty well established in your in your bands and stuff that yeah these aren't <laughs> these aren't any uh, these are turbulent they're, times they're still yeah and and well that's ties into one thing i did want to talk to you about was the impact of the last year on playing music because i spent the weekend playing drums and getting ready for, for a show next week so you still play drums yeah yeah so oh, i'm playing poor, this, poor friend i don't even know you fucking play drums in a band um in uv race yeah and i've been uh and it's been like a year since i've i've drummed or been around music and last week you and I went and saw that Wagner opera in maybe um, we should talk about that as well oh uh, well yeah I'd love to talk about that um how much I can talk about it really depends on how um open we want to be about our nefarious, um, activities. nefarious activities but I what I will say is that having not experienced music for the last year um both watching it in that crowded audience at the opera and and drumming the other day um i'm feeling very overwhelmed by it in, this, in so many respects is this going to be your first live performance in like over a year in is, well over a year yeah oh, on saturday yeah um oh, but, right. but alongside that um now that shows are happening again um like straight jackets getting asked to play shows again and total controls getting asked to play shows again and having to have discussions around the logistics of doing that has really revealed how much damage the last year's done to music in in in, in terms of um, my own relationship to it, the, the the feeling of being at a show or wanting to be at a show, and we can delve into that when we talk about the opera, but also how relevant the experience of playing, for instance, in Straightjacket, like a hardcore band that's, that music's based on immediacy, um, com- I- impulsive um, instincts, violence, like the chaos of that, and it depends upon being experiencing it often. And this is the longest time that we haven't played a show. And I was talking to Emily about the drummer the other day about it, and it was just both of us felt so reluctant to play a show until we'd written songs that really um, encapsulated what the last year's been for like, like for us because going back to these old songs that we we have played some of these songs for like 15 years but they always 
were able to remain fresh because there were wounds that you could just reopen when you played. But now, like, it's been, like, so long that reopening those wounds, like, seems on in some respects like a little pathetic, mm. like um, a little indulgent and um, a little like a tribute almost to a former experience, you know. So that's one thing that's come out of all of this is that the, the, the need to write music and cap, capture what this experience has been like. And the other thing is just the how mental the opera was the other night. <laughs> yeah, I mean, where to begin? But <laughs> I just want to stay on that for a moment because I think that's that's pretty, that's going to be a pretty powerful thing for you. Like I feel like if I was told I can't write for a year and then suddenly uh, someone was like, hey, man, it's time now, like, Give us, give us, give us your peace. I would, I would just, I would disintegrate into my own head, and it would take me so long to to write anything. Yeah, it's very daunting. Yeah, it's frightening. I, I feel like even now, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, what's that gonna be like performing in a crowded room um, for people who are d- so desperate to just hear live music again? Well, that's that part of me is um, um, th- that's the part of it that I'm most comfortable with the the actual performing it at a show. I think I think people needed that. I think we were, we're so fucking saturated in experience. Everybody needed a fucking bit of a break because well, now a lot of people gonna... have said that. But also, what what's come out of it is no- noticeably the effect on people's mental health has been like so dreadful in so many respects uh, and. We can go into this as little as we want to because it is quite a difficult issue to discuss. Um, that the the only company a lot of people had was the people that they lived with, or the screens that they were using to kind of you know interact with, with each other. And yeah. I, I think um, one of the most shocking things about when we were at the opera the other day was seeing seeing depth for the first time in so long. Like sitting in a room so far away from from the 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 screen, you know, the stage itself was. Yeah. That was such a strange experience. It's it's it. Oh, yeah. So I, th- I feel like people are going to have the these almost psychedelic awakenings to space and sound yeah. um, when they start going to shows again. Man, I don't even know. I don't know if it was because I was stoned, um, but I was just like, "Fuck, man! Like, how amazing are, are people? They just practice for months and months on end to." recite this opera from for from a hundred years ago and practice it and then perform it for all these people that are just watching um and the, i mean we're going to get to the absurd costumes and the, all the all the weird shit that was going on but it just i was like it, it, i think the break helped me really appreciate um seeing humans on stage performing like rehearsing like knowing that they've rehearsed and they've and want to just achieve some this like moment of magic on on stage for all these people like because I guess for the last year like you said we've just been watching movies and shit on on our iPads and iPhones and laptops yeah everything is just so curated and um, meticulously crafted whereas in this is just like it is also incredibly well crafted, but it's like 
live. It's, it's I don't know if I'm doing it much justice, but there's a magic to seeing people in the flesh perform. I think so too. Yeah, but I think it's a magic that. Um, but this it's was gonna... not like I'm not the, the opera was shit. Like the, the performance was whack. Like, um, but it was just cool to see. Um, the cool, cool to see uh, people doing pulling that off because I'm, yeah, I'm terrified of doing shit like that. I think the the one effect that came out of that the other night, aside from how out of it we were when we were watching it, and how that added this element of of insanity to the event, but the the all of the imperfections of it, and there, there were many, um, still didn't take away from the overall experience of almost, almost that first time that you go to a show or the first time that you experience an, an artwork or something. That's how I felt. I felt so overwhelmed by volume. The other thing is it's so performative to go to the opera too for a lot of these people, even for us included. Yeah, maybe we put, well, I mean, put we, in our finest threads. Yeah, yeah, but we, but we love Wagner, but maybe they do too. But it, there was this energy in the room that was like people performing, being at the opera and what like what that represents. And I think what why we did what we did beforehand to get into that state of mind was that we wanted to experience it like kind of giddy children and not not be like overtaken by the um, performance of being at the opera. We, I, I wanted personally to walk in there and be overwhelmed and moved and I was in, in spite of everything. I was. And, and at, at what moment? Oh, well, probably the moment I turned around and looked at you and you looked like you didn't know whether to laugh or cry, like you had an expression of radiant joy and bliss and utter confusion on your face at the I, same time. I love the theatre. Yeah. But I think we've spoken about the opera enough. I think so too. Yeah, I feel like this will get a, get a bit of a heavy hand. What I'd like to hear about now, Mumwood, is what you've been reading aside from all of the research you're doing and all of the work-related reading that you're doing. What's fun for you right now? Man, honestly, I'm not having any fun right now. I swear to God, I'm not having any fun. It's pure work, um, and and the texts that I'm reading are, are are generally involved with research. Although um, I did, I did pick up uh, David Marr's collection of essays um, only like a couple of weeks ago. Um, so I'm really enjoying, uh, you know, sifting through those. I'm also reading. Um, um, I'm reading uh, Alain de Botton's Artist Therapy, which is it's good. It's good. Um, it's a good way to think about art criticism. Actually, mm-hmm. um, what else have I been reading? I've been uh, listening to uh, the Jim Harrison audiobook again. Um, I think it's a really long lunch. Or what? Which one is it? There's a Jim Harrison audiobook. Yeah, on Audible. I told you about this and you you it, listened to it and you were really enjoying it. You said it was really funny unless you fucking lied. No. no. You fucking lied to me, no. man. We you need said, we need to edit this out, but um well, you know what? I I've of of anyone I've ever met, Elias and you are the only people that have responded to Jim Harrison as strongly as, as as you have, you both have. What do you think that's about? Is it because we're just gluttonous well, I think there's, there's, athletes? There is a certain level of that in there. But um, I think 
I would like to hear you explaining to our listeners who Jim Harrison is because okay, um, um, I think he's a writer that of immense talent and one of the one of the only food writers that I've read that I felt was 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 writing something immortal that I'd want to read. Yeah, I think Jim Harrison has the same reaction to food as I have to music. Like when he eats, it intoxicates every fiber of his genetic con- like makeup. I think that, and I think you you get that from his writing. He's also a, an incredibly celebrated American writer who wrote Legends of the Fall. But the way he talks about food, and um, I don't read a lot of culinary criticism or whatever, um, but I love to eat. I love to eat awful as you do. Um, and he writes about it with the same enthusiasm, uh, with an enthusiasm that I share when I eat it. So it all makes sense to me. Um, and he writes the way I dream about eating in the sense that I'd love to have a 40 or 50 course meal in Burgundy that's you know, tracing ancient French culinary cuisines from pig noses to, you know, all sorts of treats of liver and um, foie gras uh, uh, and then many, many a bottle of uh, claret from the 50s. (laughs) I think think that kind of indulgence is – something um i enjoy and to to kind of clarify like i think it's certainly indulgent and it's it's certainly it's also very beautiful but it's it it ties towards a general life philosophy that it doesn't end with it doesn't start and end with food and alcohol and cocaine and everything else that he was known for overindulging in like certainly he's like you know his indulgences also like crippled him he had gout he like had intense pains in his in his stomach a lot of the time and but he also applied that kind of thirst to everything he was he was continually active outdoors he was continually writing um he often when i think of gluttons i think of them as like these uh, these these pigs that just sit there and 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 things go in, uh, and nothing comes out except for waste and excrement. You know, um, while he was indulgent, he was also um, so generous with his gifts. Like his poetry is incredible. His novellas, I think, are some of my favorite writing from mm-hmm. America. And I think it also uh, says a lot about the 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 kind of the life philosophy that he shared and a lot of the writers that he loved shared, which were about living in the moment um, and this kind of nihilism that this is it. So what's the best way to celebrate the place that we're in? And it's got something to do with eating because eating is like this fucking, I mean, no other animal does what we do where we combine all these vegetables, we season them, we cure them, you know, uh, we 
coat them in different fucking crumbs and and then eat them like uh, and that's just something we do we, we no other animal does that i think it's it, it says something about you know what he chooses to do but also what what animals. other animals do that he also does is they eat the entirety of the animal like that's he true. shares that in common with with other predators and and but I think he does that more so because he has a genuine respect for anything that dies for him, you know, like if something's going to die for him to eat, he it's a ritual, like it's a ceremony where you want to respect the thing that's died for your belly. Um, so you Does that you, resonate with you? Absolutely. And he I think I remember reading he would only eat animals he has hunted himself. Um, uh, not Not always, but I mean like if he hasn't killed a type of animal uh, to eat, he won't eat that at a restaurant, you know, that animal, say. Uh, he only eats, um, like, birds that he's hunted and eaten beforehand and so on. So tell us about this audio book, the, the Really Long Lunch. Oh, man, it's got that amazing uh, long lunch with Orson Welles in it and it's uh, it's just amazing to listen to. Do you feel like that hearing about this long lunch corrupted us in some sense? Do, do, do. I think, but it offers me, it's just great escapism. Like, I feel like, um, you know, I, I just, I wonder, man, I don't know, like, are our favorite writers and musicians living, leading those lives now? Or, or was this a certain slice of decadence in, you know, the arts where people were having these extravagant, you know, 50 course meals, flying, like taking flights to the south of France to just eat and drink for like a whole bender's worth. Um, I don't know. I feel like uh, there's something romantic about it that I really like. There's some... It's definitely a, um, It's definitely not something that you see a lot of. I think people are a lot more cautious to express their... Um, it's like, their indulgences these days. Man, like people laugh at people that post their food. I fucking love people that post their photos of their food on their Instagram. I love that shit. And what's that about? Oh, man, I, I just love seeing what people are eating and like people that are enthusiastic about eating. Oh, fuck, man. bores me to tears. People that just, you know, don't care about what they eat. Why would you not? Like if to me, eating is like... The music you listen to, like or the books you read, or you know, like I take it that seriously. Um, yeah, I feel that to to delve into this a little bit. Um, Orson Welles and Jim Harrison went and had a lunch of multiple meals and multiple bottles, and um, at the end of it, um, well, throughout the meal, the the stakes just get higher and higher, and and, and you hear of stories of. Orson Welles going to lunch and faking a heart attack to get out of the bill at the end of it and the like, which, um, and the, well, this is the, this is the corruptive influence, I think, of, of reading that kind of thing is that it's just raised the bar about, like, the potentials that I have to experience food with my friends and the like. Mm -hmm. um, and so what's the audio book like? Can, can you recommend that to our audience? Yeah, I recommend it to everyone. Um, I think you, uh, yeah, just look up Jim Harrison on Audible and um, it'll come up. It's got, I think it's a really long lunch, but it might be something else. Um, but 
Yeah, I think it be beware because it's it is corruptive. I mean, uh, what we're talking about is a very privileged uh, exercise. You know, you have to have money to to. In some respects, you have to be very um, dumb with your money. I think that's what I am. I'm not very uh, disciplined with my money and so I splurge more than I should on food and drink. Um, so I think I think the, the real if I if I wasn't working like three or four different jobs, I would love to get the animal from really good butchers and do it myself and do it and you can make it affordable because a lot of the time the bits of the animal that I like eating is so cheap. This is the paradox. It's so cheap uh, to buy from butchers but it's generally really expensive when you're eating it at restaurants because well, it's Well, that's the, the other side of Jim Harrison that I think is important and while he does definitely romanticise like reckless spending and, and, and reckless indulgences, he also... Um, makes the experience of cooking for yourself and the people that you love the most the most important religious experience that you could have. Like the the best thing that you could do in your life is to cook a good meal and share it with the people that you love. Like so to and he talks specifically about cooking awful and you know not especially decadent food in terms of like it's how much it costs or whatever you know he he just speaks of you know cooking it with love so he's what resonates so much with me is that he's he, he's not just a, a a fast spending glutton and he's not just like a cook like he's a, he's an he's an eater mm. yeah for <laughs> and, sure and to read and to eat i would really be happy of my life involved those as the most common activities. Yeah, I think that was one thing I really got a lot out of the lockdown was I, I started cooking, started cooking more and started cooking for the people that I loved. And um, it really is, like you described it as religious, it's pretty fucking powerful when you cook a meal and you spend all day preparing this one dish um, and just people enjoy it or they think about it or it provokes them in some way it's a pretty it's it's kind of like i mean it's it's not dissimilar to presenting art to someone or you're writing to someone um except in some ways it's a lot more physical you know Media.